0: Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church sermon cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. That
1: being said, I hope you found time to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 before we come together in time, worshiping our Lord in communion, uh, celebrating and commemorating the work that He has done, having redeemed us. And so, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want you to follow along with me, starting in verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with ease we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil." and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. A couple of years ago, there was a couple who lived in town nearby, and husband worked a very average blue-collar kind of job. They were never really wanting of anything, but they weren't, what we might say, well-off either. Financially secure, though they had always had their needs met. They were perfectly average Americans, financially speaking, that is. But they were more tight-fisted over money than anyone you would ever meet. Closest thing they would ever come to vacation or any recreation that would cost something of any kind would be the annual uh, county fair, and anything else was an absolute necessity. If they're going to spend a dollar on it, it was an absolute necessity of life, outside the ticket to get into the county fair. And every year, the husband, husband's name was George, and he would say to his wife, Bessie, Already you can tell this is not an actual story because, well, never mind, we'll leave it at that for those of you who might be named George or Bessie. But, um, you know, see, I'm just digging myself in deeper and deeper as I go. But George it would say to his wife, who happened to be named Bessie, and it's, and it's when those two go together that it's a little bit humorous, um, lest that be a problem here too. But she said, "I would." He said, "I would sure like to ride in that there crop dusting acrobatic airplane." And every year, his wife would just say, "I know, George, but it costs ten dollars, and ten dollars is ten dollars." One of the amusements I was provided—a local pilot would uh, make his aircraft accessible to do uh, certain aircraft maneuvers and acrobatic maneuvers. Uh, being a former Air Force pilot and having a a crop dusting business on the side. Many years later, they were at the fair, though, and again, George said, Bessie, I'm 81 years old now, and if I don't ride that airplane this year, I may never, ever get a chance. And Bessie said to him, I know, George, but that airplane costs $10, and $10 is $10. by this time, the pilot had gotten to know George and Bessie a little bit, Every single year, you watched them go back and forth about whether or not he would actually get into this aircraft, pay him the $10, and so he finally looked at them and said, okay, guys, I, I've watched you do this all this time. I know, George, you really want to ride in this airplane, and so here's the deal. I'll let you both go up in the aircraft, and if we can go through all of the maneuvers and land without hearing so much of a word spoken, no screaming, no hollering, your, your ride will be free. But if you say so much as a word, it'll cost you ten dollars. So that seemed pretty favorable to them. The pilot went on, you know, you've been wanting to ride this for so long. I know you don't part with your money lightly, so I won't charge you the ten dollars. And that sounded great. So they hopped in, pilot gave them the ride of their lives. Say stalled, they rolled. They dove, they did loop-de-loops, they flew inverted right above the ground, all of these different maneuvers, and they finally landed, and the pilot, George, got out of the aircraft, and the pilot said, I can't believe it, George, you didn't so much as make a peep, not a single word. George looked at him and said, well, I thought about saying something when Bessie fell out of the airplane, but $10 is $10. I don't know if you can empathize with that story or not. The point is that we will do unethical and maybe illogical things sometimes for the love of money, holding it fast, keeping it close. This last week, I happened to see that the jackpot, the jackpot rebounded from a one-and-a-half billion dollar winning to another $750 million this week. Uh, I don't know what it is today. I don't even know if somebody won. Not really interested in that. I just saw the headline, but another 750 million dollars uh, that had rebounded from a one and a half billion dollar payout. This is making now the some of the lar- the largest week in jackpot winnings that in the history of the lottery. And, and we are all aware of the transfixing, irrational effects of money. And in the context of what we've been looking at, even the condemning effects that discontentment can have on an individual or a society. Dis- discontentment because we can never seem to get enough I remember when I was in high school working in a gas station, it was the only gas station in town, in fact it was just about the only business in town, very small town I grew up in, every single year the mayor would award the gas station um, an award for uh, the better improvement of our town, the gas station, uh, and there was an individual every other week, every time he'd get his paycheck on Friday, he'd come into the gas station and he would blow his entire paycheck with uh, the lottery tickets, there's one right after the next. I knew when he would come in, I'd just think, okay, here we go. And he would would start off buying a few, go out to his car, scratch them off, lose, come back in, buy a few more, go out to his car, scratch them off, come back in, and maybe he'd win $5, $10, $15 here, maybe even $100, and he would come back in, always for more money, spend what he had just won to get more tickets. And he would continue to do that, and he'd be frustrated. And the more he'd buy these tickets, he would stop going to his car. He wouldn't even bother anymore. He'd just stand off in the corner and feverishly scratch off the lottery tickets, and all the sediment would be all over the desk and everything else, and he'd lose all of his money, his entire two weeks paycheck. Then he'd go home. And where he got the money from, I have no idea, but he'd get more money from home, come back, and spend more money Buying more lottery tickets. So discontent. Now, now he just carried out whatever whim of his heart. He had no restraint, no self-discipline. Some of us maybe have a little bit more self-discipline, but we still have the same internal heart reality that we love money. Maybe it expresses itself in a different way. Rather than giving it up, we hold on to it tightly. We won't give it up. We hoard it like George and Bessie would. there is a transfixing effect that money can have on a person, a people group, a society as a whole, and even on people in the church. We looked last week at how to diagnose a deadly condition that we called spiritual botulism that uh, comes from the greater majority of American pulpits today, messages that deny the power of the gospel of God and salvation to redeem you from your sin by grace through faith alone. But that certainly begs the question, and maybe you've wondered this before, but why do they bother? What is the motivation of the charlatan? What's the point? If they don't believe in their work, why do they do their work? If they don't believe in the Bible, then why preach from the Bible? Why would they teach? They don't believe that which they're teaching from is accurate, inspired, anyway. Why would they want to lead people astray? What's the point of that? What do they get out of it? Well, many of you may or may not be familiar with a man named Demas, There's very little known about him except that he had the unique privilege of ministering alongside the Apostle Paul and he was entrusted with a tremendous stewardship ministering with Paul. But he's only mentioned three times in Scripture. So there's not much, there's not much that we know about him. In Colossians 4.14 and in uh, Philemon 24, Demas is a man who has tremendous zeal for the gospel. Paul honors him calling him a co-laborer in his work, one whom Paul could depend on. says he's a fellow worker, along with Epaphras, Aristarchus, Luke, and Mark. That's some pretty high company that Demas keeps. Demas is no spiritual wimp. He would not have ever been the kind of person that you would assume would turn into a gospel compromiser. This is the last guy that's going to accept a seeker-sensitive philosophy of ministry. He's not Judas who steals from the money bag and who commits treason for the price of a slave. That's not this guy. This would have been someone that the church would look up to as a model, a champion of truth, an expositor, and an uncompromising godly man. And all this, while well, Paul is in prison awaiting trial before Caesar, which would have also been extremely dangerous for Demas. Peter didn't even do that while he was waiting Jesus' trial. And yet, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon. Because Demas in fear left me deserted? No. Because Demas, persecuted for the faith, laid his life out for the gospel? No. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He had the church duped. He had Epaphras, Aristarchus, Mark, and Luke duped. He had Paul duped. After all that he had been through, facing threats, risking his life with the Apostle Paul, no doubt being beaten as well, it was a love for the things of this world that led him to compromise his integrity and the integrity of his ministry. Discontentment has a powerfully intoxicating effect, it had a powerfully intoxicating effect on Demas. Demas and many more before and after him, and you would be rather foolish to so quickly shrug off the intoxicating effect that the love of money and the things of this world has on you. Where those seedbeds of love for things are sown in your heart, and maybe all you lack is the opportunity to satisfy your lust. Let me warn you to be watchful for the subtle expressions, refuse to entertain them or nurture them or pursue the satisfaction of them. I think our commitment to money, our lifestyle, our social status, a certain kind of home or a car has a much higher priority in our lives than we would ever care to admit. Time and again, I've seen husbands who put careers before wives Mothers who will put their careers before their children. People enslaved to lenders because they won't live within their means, always redlining it. Or who spend too much on their lifestyle so that they have nothing left over, nothing left to give to the Lord. Employees who are more concerned about their pay than the quality of their work people who surround themselves with others that hold the same economic status, those who are attracted toward people who have wealth, those who constantly find themselves worrying about money, thinking about money, thinking about bills, and so on and so forth. And I read a fascinating article this last week, four different studies performed by the University of Utah and Harvard that said that Just by thinking about money, the more unethically minded you become. Just by thinking about it. Thinking about money puts you in a mindset that makes you willing to make morally compromised decisions. Even in just small amounts, thinking about money-related issues, you'll wind up ethically compromised and you'll soon make unethical decisions in order to increase your bottom line discontentment will also take root in your heart and you'll begin looking at those who don't seem to have the financial difficulties such as yourself with a spirit of bitterness, envy, and even hate. Amazing. All the time and money that went into that research and all they had to do was open their Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, read our passage for this morning. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil they would have saved themselves a whole lot of effort. So what we're going to look at is the intoxicating effect that the love of money can have on the mind. And when we understand that, the compound, uh, compounded by the wicked hearts of men, we can certainly understand why there would be many who would use godliness as a means of gain. The fact is... The Bible is full of all kinds of passages about the dangers of loving money, but even so, it is rare to find a believer who really has a biblical comprehension of how they should think about money. And so we're going to look at three misnomers that people generally have about money that we can find in our text. The first one is stinginess isn't discontentment. I'm putting these in the negative. These are wrong assumptions that people have in the church about money. Stinginess isn't discontentment. In fact, they'll they'll think it's a a virtue. It's virtuous to be stingy. Verses 6 and 8. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And believe it or not, many people will read that, And then they'll read into the text and conclude, well, then poverty must be morally superior to wealth. This is justification for hoarding our money. It's wrong to spend money. Particularly, believers who are unwilling to show generosity are prone to that kind of mentality. And I don't think that anyone really actually believes that uh, poverty is a morally superior position to wealth, but we'll quickly use that to rationalize our stinginess. Rather than showing a spirit of generosity, what we say is that, well, what that person really needs is contentment. Now, I understand they need bread, but, well, surely the Lord is teaching them contentment in all of this. See, the spirit of discontentment works directly against the spirit of generosity. The Corinthians were notably discontent Christians. Their city was a a critical trade city in the first century Rome, and and there's a lot of money to be made there and a lot of money to be lost. And unlike most cities in ancient Rome, Corinth provided a unique opportunity for new wealth. You didn't have to be born to royalty, you didn't have to be born into wealth. The entrepreneurial economy had seen many in deep poverty become exceedingly wealthy. And the Corinthian church was used to that kind of atmosphere. Kind of atmosphere that was characterized by greed. So much so that they left Paul in poverty while he spent his time ministering to the church there. And they were the least generous of all the churches, even though they had so much. And that's why Paul rebukes them by contrasting their church with the churches in Macedonia. And by the way, little known fact, there was, there was a hot competition. I mean, you're, you're talking about Red Sox and Dodgers kind of competition between the churches in Macedonia and the church in Corinth here. And, and so they're, they're just kind of pit in competition against one another. I know you're not from either Los Angeles or Boston, so you have no idea what I'm talking about when I compare them with the Red Sox and the Dodgers, Right. No, they are highly competitive societies. And Paul says, interestingly enough, these churches in Macedonia, you know, they are the opposite extreme of you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul said that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, katabathus pitoke. Phrase is literally, down-to-the-depth poverty. It goes on, in that poverty they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. A word can be translated generosity, and is a closely, it is closely associated with the word that is being used for contentment. Different words, but often associated with one another. Contentment and Generosity. And Paul says, verse 3 in 2 Corinthians 8, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. In other words, Paul, don't rob us of this blessing. Isn't that remarkable? Here you had the churches in Macedonia in tremendous poverty who gave abundantly. Then you have the church in Corinth that seemed to have everything. Yet Paul had to rebuke them, saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion, but for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what the difference was? The difference between the church in Corinth... And the church in Macedonia? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And then in chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound in you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What that meant was that not only were they called to serve the church and the spiritual gifts that they had been given, whether the prophetic word in tongues, Whatever service, whatever gift they had been given, Paul also associates the responsibility to express generosity in the church. That is the desire of God, but the issue is contentment first. Recognizing that God is the source of their provision. Adequacy doesn't come from ourselves. Adequacy is from God And he will ensure that we are sufficient in everything that we need. The Corinthians believe that they never really had enough. But they had beyond food and clothing. They weren't content with that. They had a lifestyle to sustain. The American dream. So maybe like some of you, they had this attitude, well, I would really love to be generous toward the church. See, the assumption is, well, because the Corinthians are wealthy, therefore they must be generous. But many of us will say, well, I I would love to be generous toward the church, but there's no way I would ever be able to work that out in my budget. It's simply not there. I'm the church in Macedonia, except I I can't seem to find, I don't know how the Macedonians did it. And you say that, and you reach into your pocket, and there's a $1,500 phone there. Now, I took my phone out of my pocket and left it on the seat to make sure that I wasn't uh, judging myself, right, before I said that. I'm joking. That's not why I left my phone on the seat. you got a $1,500 phone plus the contract for your phone. Then there is that $1,200 a year or more that you spend subscribing to whatever television service that you have. Uh, And then uh, maybe $600 a year for the Internet. (laughs) I mean, come on, we live in the 21st century. 21st century, these are basic necessities of life, aren't they? That's right, they are. Just like they were for the last 6,000 years of world history. But it's really expensive with all our modern amenities to live in the 21st century, and so the church has rejoiced to see 2 Corinthians 9.7 because we don't understand it in context. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm so thankful I'm relieved from the responsibility of having to give regularly to the church. I'm relieved from the responsibility of having to show a generous spirit. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Any more that the parent tells his kid to go clean his room and stops and says, Oh, I want it done with a joyful heart or don't do it at all. And the kid goes, huh, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to do it now because I'm not, not going to do it with a joyful heart. I can't do it with a joyful heart. I don't have the resources to do it with a joyful heart. I'm not going to clean my room. Is that, is that within the child's prerogative? Of course not. The parent says, no, no, no. You got this wrong, kid. You're going to clean your room, and you will put on a joyful heart. Same thing that Paul is saying in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Give as you have purpose in your heart, but not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For many years, the Old Testament concept of tithing 10% of the first fruits of your income was taught as a binding law for New Testament believers. Tithing in the Old Testament was much more than that, of course, but Israel was a theocratic economy, and as a theocratic economy, um, under the Mosaic law, uh, 10% is the standard estimate that was assumed that was used directly for temple purposes. There was a lot of other things that had to be sustained Um, by the um, offerings that were provided in Old Testament Israel. But 10% maybe is what we would say today is the division between what we would pay in taxes versus what we would pay to the church, somewhere around 10%. But one thing we are extremely thankful for, and, and I mean this, we are very thankful in the contemporary church since especially the 1970s and that resurgence of expository preaching that was pioneered in large part by D. Martin Lloyd Jones from England, the doctor. And uh, that resurgence of expository preaching meant that people began to understand that the New Testament Christian is no longer bound to Old Testament law, out of which tithing is a part. But then many have adopted what we might say is the right theology, wrong application, because then they have used that to justify why they don't give at all or very little. What they don't realize is that the Christian is always identified with generosity, giving from the outflow of the redeemed heart. One of the marks of the true Christian in the New Testament is that he is characterized by sacrificial worship, and giving is a part of that worship. Hebrews 13, 15-16 summarizes the whole Christian life this way, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. What do you think that's talking about? It's talking about giving up your financial resources, your monetary resources, your tangible resources for the work of the ministry. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Romans 12:1 represents the whole Christian life as a sacrifice to God. That's why it was easy for the church in Acts chapter four in a very unique circumstance in the church where there was tremendous need. They didn't think of anything. they didn't think anything of selling all their possessions in order to bring it to the Jerusalem church. They were eager to give it back to Christ. It had all come from him anyway. Just like Job. It said in Job chapter 1, verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul talks to the Corinthians a little bit facetiously. If you have a generous spirit, what are you talking about if? What are you talking about? The assumption is that you do. Because... You have received salvation from your Lord. Likewise, Paul actually speaks, well, a little bit antagonistically or sort of uses a play on words in verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain. That's what the false teachers were saying. So they were teaching. Godliness is a means of gain. You're manipulating and extorting the work of the ministry to line their pockets. Paul says, well, you know what? They're right. They're right. Godliness is a means of great gain, but when it's accompanied with contentment. And then he goes on in verse 7, leading us to our second and third misconception about money. Money is evil, and this life is practically eternal. Those are kind of the misconceptions that we can generally have. Money is evil. This life is practically eternal. That's how we live. Money is evil. That's actually our third point, and we're going to come back to it In a second, because Job is also a really good example of why money is not evil. But first, we want to look at the misperception by many that this life is practically eternal. And so, Paul says in verse 7 For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. None of us would ever say that life is practically eternal. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we won't die. We don't say that, but we live that way. Job also says in Job chapter 1, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Does that sound like what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7? Oh, how did Job know that? It's well known that in the Egyptian cult system, they believed that, Whatever you had with you in the grave, you would take with you to the next life, and that's why the Egyptian pharaohs built these massive pyramids so they could fit as much in there as possible. Some archaeological research has even discovered that even though they have long since been robbed of their former glory, all the wealth that had been accumulated and amassed in these things, they would even construct entire vessels, ships, in there. Whatever the Pharaoh found value in this life, he would put in there in order that they could take it with him into the next, whatever comforts of this life they wanted in the next world. And entire cities, in order to support these massive structures, the construction of these massive structures, would develop. They'd be labor cities developing around the construction of these things. And, and one of them, just one pyramid, would take an estimated 20 years and 100,000 laborers. And all that just to leave the world naked anyway. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, As he had come named from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You don't take anything with you. All of us know how quickly this life passes by. I often think of our oldest son, John, and how when he was born, school seemed so far off. He might as well have been an eternity away, uh, even though it was only actually from the time he was born, five or six years. That just seemed so far off. And um, already an entire third of his life under our roof is gone. Just like that. And we only get to repeat the time that we've had with him under our roof two more times. That's it. All of a sudden, life seems to move a whole lot more quickly. You've experienced that. Most of you in this room have undoubtedly had those same moments when you look back to a time in your life where you looked forward to where you are today and it seems so far off and you're just stunned because it seems as though no time has gone by at all. Now, I'm in my 30s and some of you look at me in my 30s and think, that's double my life. That is so far away. And I remember thinking the same thing when I was 15. And so do you. And some of you are double what I am. I won't say who you are, and you won't say who you are. But some of you look at, at who I am and think, well, he's so young, I'm twice his age. And yet you look over the course of the last 30 years and you think, where did that time go? It's gone. Well, it's true what James 4.14 says. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's gone. Your whole life amounts to nothing more than breath on a winter's morning. Soon no one even knows you were there. It's gone. Can't get it back. Where'd it go? So you would think that we labor feverishly to prepare for everything that happens after that vapor is dissipated, after it's gone, for when we enter into eternity. But instead, we are obsessed with living in that split second of the time. Doing whatever gives us pleasure and comfort and building our kingdoms. Trying to set a foundation between those little droplets of water. Charles Spurgeon said, life is short. Eternity is long. It is only reasonable that this short life is lived in light of eternity. It's pretty simple. But we don't live that way because it seems that we think life is long or life is eternal. But in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives us a parable of a man who who does just that lives life, building up his kingdom in that vapor of a breath in a winter's morning. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has in abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. So what does God say to him? You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the rich man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So back in First in Timothy chapter 6, again, verses 7 and 9, we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And that brings us to the final misconception that we want to address this morning. That is, money is evil. Therefore, given all these realities... False misperception of many in the church is that money is is evil. We've already mentioned James 4.14 that says we are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Well, James 5 continues. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived luxuriously on earth. And a life of wanton pleasure—you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Picture here is that of an employer, and the issue is not that he is rich; it's not the issue. We'll see in just a moment in verse ten of First Timothy chapter six that being rich is not the issue. If you're rich, you thank the Lord for your riches. If you're poor, you thank the Lord for his provision. The Apostle Paul said he experienced times of both poverty and wealth. He had both. In Philippians four twelve, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what's the secret? He goes back to our first point. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever I have. Whatever circumstances I'm in, I'll be content." So even as an apostle, Paul experienced times of both wealth and times of tremendous poverty. But the issue was never a matter of riches. It was not ever that Paul, in times of wealth, found himself in a position of disfavor with God and in times of poverty found himself in a position of greater favor with God. That would seem to be works-oriented, wouldn't it? The picture is never a matter of riches. It is always the matter of contentment. And so, back in James 5, we have a man who, because of his love of money, acts immorally. He doesn't pay his employees fairly. He cheats them out of the money that they've earned. He holds back money he owes so he can give himself a little bit bigger of a salary. But it's not money that's the problem. Money is never the problem. Any more than a gun is a problem when somebody is murdered. It's just a tool. The issue is the heart of a man and how he uses that tool. It's not money that's the problem. Very often you might hear people say, money is a root of all evil. Is that what it says? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Of course that's what it says. Thus the Bible saith: Money is the root of all evil. It's right there. I'm reading it in my Bible, but you omitted something, didn't you? (laughs) The love of money. It's not money, it's love of it. Is a root of all evil. All sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Having money isn't the wrong in and of itself. Mention mentioned that Job would usher us into this concept, so turn over to Job chapter 1 for just a minute. Job, right before the Psalms, verses 1 through 11. A little bit of an extended passage, but bear with me. There was a man... In the name of Us, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. You see that? What else was he? He was upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And uh, man lived in tremendous poverty because he was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, turned away from evil. No. <laughs> no, we have a remarkable account of his wealth. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men in the East. Now, that kind of livestock in today's economy would be a pretty significant net worth. (laughs) This is the greatest of all men in the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Wise parent, by the way. Wise parent. Because he knows that good works can be a facade, He's not interested in behavioralism, interested in their heart. And so thus Job does continually. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angelic beings, came to God, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions you have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to his face. So right there, God calls Job blameless and upright. There is none like him in all the earth. That, that is some commendation. He's a righteous man, but incredibly wealthy. And does he curse God? When Satan comes to take everything away? Of course not. Satan assumed that he would. But he doesn't do that. Abraham, likewise, incredibly blessed by God and exceedingly wealthy. We don't have time to look. As were the other forefathers of Israel in the Old Testament. But they recognize that wealth is a gift from God that they held with an open hand. And so Paul will say later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, we're going to look at this next week, that we are not to be conceited or to fix or hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And Many of us can't understand a man like Demas. Many of us can't understand men who would manipulate and extort In order to heap up for themselves their own wealth, living off the backs, manipulating people, forsaking the true gospel in order to line their pockets. But the reality is, we do understand how money can manipulate our own ethics, lead us to compromise, fudge our taxes just a little bit, our income. Maybe move some things around, so on and so forth. Act unethically. Discontentment so very quickly takes root in our hearts. And soon, bitterness, anger, and everything else. We find ourselves loving. Money. And do you see how grave the consequences are? Paul says they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. In other words, they've skewered their souls. And they're going to suffer eternal torment in hell. Now, if they were willing to skewer their own souls, do you really think they care about yours? They're not interested in you. They're interested in selling their piece of holy cloth. Did you know in the Health, Wealth, Prosperity Gospel... One of the the largest places the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is flourishing is in places like Nigeria, Africa, some of the most poverty-stricken regions of the world. And even in America, the congregation that most comprises this false gospel message are those who are incredibly poor. Meanwhile, they're so-called shepherds will fly around in their multi-million dollar Learjets, 20 million dollar homes on the coast, padding themselves with all kinds of treasures in this life. might be hard for us to comprehend that. But where do, you, where do you show the same affections, love of money? Because I, I'll guarantee you something, if, if, if the love of money has taken the seed in your heart, all you lack is the same opportunity to be given to you. And we are, whether we are considered low income or high income on our taxes, We are a high-income society, incredibly wealthy. How do you use your riches? For the glory of God or the glory of yourself? As men come now, take our offering together this morning, what we celebrate in this time is our complete moral bankruptcy. And I misspoke. We don't celebrate our complete moral bankruptcy, do we? Now what we celebrate what we worship the Lord for is that he has redeemed us from our complete moral bankruptcy. We recognize that whatever we have in this life is absolutely meaningless in eternity. And whether we're talking about our riches, our worldly possessions or our works, Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, it is because of the work that Christ has done, paying our debt in full, a debt that we could never pay, that we are able to come together in fellowship and worship the Lord with one another, having been bought, having been purchased, having been made new
0: by nothing other than the blood of Christ. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church sermon cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the Sermoncast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, all rights reserved.